Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast. It's August 17th, 2015. This is the Borders and Trump edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department, University of Birmingham. I'm joined as usual by my co-hosts, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristala. Hello, Adam. Hello, world. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of the News and Commentary site EA Worldview. Hello, everybody. Good to have you, and good to have you back listening again. Our two topics this week. First, as the concerted efforts of migrants to enter the UK through the Channel Tunnel from Calais cause travel disruption, enthrall the British media and bring the already prominent topic of immigration even closer to the centre of British public life, we talk about migration, the apparent global surge in it and the politics that come with that. Second, Donald Trump, billionaire, celebrity and Olympic class loudmouth, roils the Republican Party presidential candidate selection process in the United States. It's quite a spectacle, but how seriously should we be taking it? In late July, it was reported that 67% of British people polled supported the deployment of the army to the port town of Calais in northern France in response to a surge in efforts by non-European migrants to travel to the UK by stowing away on trucks, cars, trains or even walking through the Channel Tunnel. The UK Home Office said Border Force and the French authorities together prevented more than 39,000 attempts to cross the Channel illegally in 2014-15, more than double the number the previous year. Meanwhile, travel disruption arising from the situation in Calais led to vast disruption in lorry traffic, raising temperatures in the UK further. These media-grabbing scenes come in the context of broader migration crisis, or crisis so-called, in Europe. In January to May 2014, 49,500 migrants entered Europe via the Mediterranean. In the same period in 2015, 105,000 did, so the rate is increasing rapidly. They do so at great risk, with many lives being lost in the perilous crossing, including hundreds in one single incident this last April. Handling the political fallout, Prime Minister David Cameron lost points with Liberal critics, though not one suspects with the general population, for making reference to a swarm of migrants trying to enter Europe and to migrants seeking to, quote, break in to Britain. So, a manifestation of Britain's tendency towards small-minded xenophobia in matters of immigration, a warning of the coming strains on the borders of Western civilization itself, both... Neither Cristala give us some context for all this. I have three. I'm going to start us off with three comments about this. At the British level, these this this recent YouGov poll that you were talking about, Adam, what some of the linked kind of polling to that and the associated comments said that part of the reason that migrants were coming to the to the UK is because. Britain is too generous regarding its welfare payouts, right? So it it hooks into this kind of welfare debate and I think is very much being harnessed to, to uh, play mm. with that, let's say. And at the second level, at the European level, I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, but Angela Merkel, uh, the German chancellor came out and said that we need to have an EU-wide approach to asylum policy, which of course is nothing new, but which also underlines this kind of chaos mm. at the European level and complete kind of incoherence um, with regards to country-level policies about this, and that's only become going to become more and more pressing, I think, and more political fodder, particularly in the UK and in the context of the Brexit vote. So I think there are a bunch of levels, um, a bunch of things that this is pointing to at the British and the European level. And then if you kind of scan out a little bit more, all of this is happening in the context where the uh, where UN agencies are pointing to the fact that this is the first time since World War II where we've had more than 50 million forcibly displaced people globally. So we're looking at 16.5 million refugees globally. We contrast this with 1.2 million pending refugee uh, asylum applications globally and 93,000 resettled people at the end of 2014. Uh, most of them, I think, going to Canada, the US, and I was shocked to see and haven't verified this, Australia. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very welcome they are there, I'm uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, these are the kind of the, the, the numbers that to, to see, to see what's happening in the kind of European level in that context. I mean, and then if you scan out a little bit more, we're talking about people who come from conflicts like, Afghanistan, um, Myanmar, obviously Syria, Iraq, 
South Sudan. Christella, that's 16.5 million yeah. refugees last year. Yeah. And you said 50 million. 51.2 to be 2 precise. million, which would be internally displaced people within and countries. internally and uh, globally displaced. Right. Now, how does that figure compare with the previous year? Is, is that statistic, is the UN given us any frame of reference for is this an increasing pace of refugee crisis? It is an increasing pace. It's the largest number since World War II, but in terms of how that is how that's moving incrementally, I don't know. Okay. I mean, I will start off with a fundamental point, which will immediately get me in trouble with the, the kind folks out here like Migration Watch in Britain um, who insist this is all an example of Britain going straight to hell uh, and the country sinking under the weight of these deadbeat immigrants who just simply want to steal all our money and our jobs. If you do not do anything about the root causes that drive people to flee their countries, you're going to be in a Groundhog's Day of a recurrent conversation about this with no end in sight. It is not my experience that many people who leave family, communities, do so because they want to do so. They, they, even that there's some lure of a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow in another country. Quite often they are being forced out. They're going through great hardship. They're seeing divisions, sometimes from sons and daughters, sometimes from husbands and wives. They are, in many cases, leaving after generations of being in a particular area. It is desperation that drives people to do this, not some evil wish to sponge off others. Why? Because you have civil wars and conflicts at an increasing pace in much of the world. Quite often we don't have reported the African conflicts. Nigeria, Christella cited, one could talk about the Congo, one could talk about Somalia, one could talk about uh, North Africa and increasing instability in Libya. You can talk about the problems in Iraq. You can talk about the world's possibly longest refugee crisis, which is that of Palestine, with people living in camps for up to almost 70 years. You deal with those issues, or you face the effects, the consequences of them. I'll add a second point as well, that quite often this discussion, which is supposedly about migration, is in flight, racism, or fear of the other. And let's be point blank about it. The reason why you're getting flack directed at supposedly people storming us through Calais, implied people of a different color from us, is because those people who have been xenophobic in Britain cannot rail about Eastern Europeans to the same extent anymore. I don't know if that gives you any answers, but hopefully it gives you a bit of context. And that is, is that much of the discussion about immigration does not seek solutions. It seeks to stigmatize people because actually dealing with these issues is difficult and tough, and people don't really want to confront that. So they take the easy way out, at least easy for them, of basically passing the blame onto others. But there are two questions for me there. One is how do you address... So I completely agree with you, sure. but one, one is how do you address, address that wide-ranging domestic apathy that you find in most refugee intake countries... Um, yes, so there are wars. Yes, so governments may need to deal with it, but not our problem in this country. Deal with it in your own country. How do you craft a debate, a national debate, such that these kind of issues are dealt with? And then how do you unpack those, uh, the xenophobia, the racisms, the transference? And also inside that, I think, is also a very real fear of others. Um, so... So I wonder how do you maybe create a situation, a context of, of more empathy, but also how do you break that kind of that apathy? I think the tougher and more abstract answer is that you have to change the culture itself. You have to change from a culture of fear to one of which is a culture of compassion and inclusion and not start from the standpoint that these people are threats or menaces. But the problem is it's easy for me to say it and it's hard for that to happen in practice. Uh, much of the rhetoric I'm in Britain and I believe in other countries as well, certainly in the United States, we'll talk about Mr. Trump and his uh, projections of all Mexicans as rap rapists in a few minutes. It's premised on the fact that these are people who you don't really want to be living next to. So I'll start with actually a practical point, which is actually the uh, EU standards on asylum. I think he's absolutely right. I think you've got to take this issue out of the hands of national governments who will play to their own populations and therefore will be regressive about this. And hopefully at a European level, you'll get some type of sensible approach to it. 
Now that's a gamble because you could wind up getting a European regressive approach. But the fact is, is that unless you get some type of common standards that are beyond opinion polls, that are beyond the demagogues who will seek to exploit this for fear, unless you get those common standards on when can people enter the European Union, if they enter or bypass the official rules, how you deal with it at that point, how you deal with this legally and politically and economically, then you're always going to have imbalances within Europe which people will exploit. Supposedly, we are the soft touch in Britain, so they will come here. Others in Germany would say, no, we are the soft touch. We are the ones who've had to take in all these people. And it gets to be a trading game until you get the lowest common denominator of who can sound most anti-immigrant amongst the whole lot. Hmm. I mean, it, just to put it in some kind of context, when you're looking at the European picture, as you said, I mean, the British uh, picture isn't that bad, if, you, if bad is the language that you want to put it into, you know, the number of people who are in Calais or indeed the number of people that the UK as a whole is, is contending with, you know, compared to other European countries, some of which just you, through reasons of geographical proximity are uh, receiving much larger waves of people because that's, uh, that, that's where you go first if you're trying to get out of, out of Africa. But you can see the the instinct at every stage in the process is push it back. So in this country, it's, well, why do they need to come here? They're already in France. This is the French problem. Yeah. France could in turn say, well, surely they should still be down in the south of Europe, wherever they entered. Yeah. In the south of Europe, they say, well, you know, we can't be expected to deal with all of this on behalf of Europe. So uh, either we have some kind of comprehensive European solution or you push it back one stage further to say, let's push it outside Europe until eventually you get back to the borders of whatever country it is where the conflict is going on, Syria, Afghanistan, wherever it is. And, well, you know, I guess once you get to that point, there are either two possibilities. You either say, we need to quote-unquote sort out the problems that are leading all these people to want to leave, which the evidence seems to suggest is mostly beyond us in these situations. You know, some kind of root and branch resolution of global conflict. Mm -hmm. Sure, that's going to fix your migration problem, but that's, uh, uh, you know, that's like trying to crack nuclear, nuclear fusion as a way to come up with a more efficient way of, uh, heating your bedroom. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's true that it would fix the problem, but it's, uh, setting it up a pretty high bar. Failing that, you clearly need some kind of comprehensive European, probably global view on what you do with these people collectively, given that if everyone is individually left to sort it out, there is going to be this passing of the buck uh, and, and, and race to the bottom. I mean, on the specific question of immigration into the UK, I, I do feel genuinely, I don't know if torn is quite, quite the right word, but like I feel a sense of conflict in my political principles a little bit, because on the one hand, over recent decades, largely because the rights position, I think, has combined great tolerance for rising economic inequality with xenophobia. I suspect the left, which wants more equality, has ended up coming tacitly towards the position of what sometimes sounds implicitly like open borders. Certainly go by my Facebook feed, which is mostly populated by pretty liberal people. Any reference to immigration or immigration control is responded to immediately as though not just the tone or the packaging, but the very thing itself is in some way a noxious, toxic, right-wing conception. But the more I think about it, I mean, as someone who favours a lot of domestic redistribution of wealth, and for whom that would be a high-priority objective, you do come pretty fast once you go down the road of wealth redistribution on a significant scale to important questions of who's in or who's out, unless you have an extremely radical global perspective on that. So I think there's a really difficult conversation that the left of centre of politics in this country, maybe in other countries, is yet to fully have with itself about how you reconcile what is clearly a strong desire for uh, wide-ranging redistributionist policies with the fact that that is very difficult to reconcile with anything other than uh, controlled immigration. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need a much more humane, organised uh, uh, and uh, politically sensitive running of the immigration process, but it does mean that important questions still arise about the border, how the border is secured, processes for denying residence to people who, uh, who enter the country against the rules, presuming there should be some kind of rules. And I know that that puts me immediately in the territory of the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph, even for wanting to talk about the issue. But at the back of my mind, as I revile the tone and the tenor of the discussion that's taking place about asylum seekers, and as this would apply much more importantly to economic migrants, which is a separate issue and which is a very big issue that 
kind of interweaves with the asylum-seeking debate. There are some difficult conversations to be had on the left that are not being had, I think, at the moment because the, the right-wing discourse is so thoroughly monopolised and toxified the, the immigration question. I don't think it has to be as all or nothing as that with respect to it because I don't think anyone left, right, centre, high, low would disagree with the need for a rational system based on rules and regulations for taking in the applications of people, sorting out political cases for asylum with those who are trying to move for economic reasons. Mm. I don't think anybody would object to the fact that you do not have an uncontrolled right of entry into a country. I think the objection right now is is that it's not quite clear what the system is at many levels in many countries. And how it's enforced. Yeah. And how arbitrary that enforcement is. Exactly. So you have some people spending in the, you know, this story was kind of buried last week amidst all the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. Reports of women who are spending up to a year in detention without charge in Britain simply mm-hmm. because their cases cannot be processed effectively. At a wider level, I know that people who are waiting for renewal of visas who are legally here are now being told they may have to wait up for six months to get a decision because the system just is not set up mm. properly. It's not set up properly at a national scale. It's not set up properly at a European scale. So that's the starting point. Right. So I guess we need, you know, what we need is a lot of resources for a much more speedy, much more efficient immigration system, one where the rules are clear, one where they're consistently enforced, and one where a lot of care is taken to separate out those who are asylum seekers who genuinely have cause to fear persecution and cannot return home from the very many people who are, no doubt, and understandably so, wanting to move for economic reasons. And at the end of that process, a significant number of people will still need to be denied the right of residency in the UK, unless we're to take some very radical steps with regard to the, the structure of the economy and the structure of society. So I guess finding our way to that path to talk about what a humane, adequate, left-wing immigration system looks like is a conversation that I think is more important than its absence from the current debate would, would seem to suggest. Because it's become the case that talking about the issue at all has taken you into a, a very small silo uh, in which people who have very toxic right-wing rhetoric about the issue are justifiably taken down by people who don't like that rhetoric, but without always engaging with that that part of the substance, I think. Well, let me build on that just a bit more, because that's certainly a valid response. Remind me the number of people that came into the UK last, or your, your statistics that start, Adam, about the number of people who are trying to come into the UK. Uh, well, the, the uh, people who are trying to cross the channel was 39,000 attempts, apparently. I don't know if that's individual people or the same and person making multiple of... attempts. That was uh, since 2014-15. 2014-15. Now, this is a country of about what, 60 million people. So let's accept that 39,000, which sounds like quite a large number, but if you put it into a percentage basis, oh, that's what, uh, less than one-tenth of one percent of Britain's mm-hmm. population who tried to make it cross there. So well, why do I say that? Go back to the previous waves of immigrants who have come into the UK. Let's talk about the immigration from India and Pakistan, the South Asian immigration um, in recent decades both the wave that came directly from South Asia and then later in the 1970s, the wave that came from Africa. Let's talk about the West Indian immigration of the 1940s. In percentage terms, there have been much greater waves of immigration into this country, Mm. which have been later upheld as being a positive thing for the Britain of the 21st century. Why do I say that? I say that for two reasons. I'm not as sure that this is a problem of numbers as much as it is a question of getting back to your issues regarding of resource. And that is that this is happening as central government is cutting the funding in Britain to local governments. Local governments who are expected to provide emergency housing, in many cases emergency services, for immigrants. Local governments quite rightly say, you're cutting our budgets for this, come in and take up the slack. And a central government, conservative-led government, whose intent on basically cutting central government expenditure finds it easier not to deal with that core issue but to simply let immigration stew and fester with all this hyperbole. And I'll have one other thing right now. I'll be direct about this. If we're going to have sensible policy, which we should have, sensible regulations, which we should have, a sensible return policy, which we should have, 
let's do it with a legitimate and decent regard for the statistics and for information. There's a group called Migration Watch in this country, which just happens to be led by a man named Lord Green, a former ambassador. Now, because of the nature of the British system, lords don't get interrogated very uh, intensely unless they wind up uh, cheating on their expenses to a huge amount or doing something even more indecent. Migration Watch and Lord Green don't cross that boundary. What they do is, is that they throw out a lot of statistics, or even in some cases don't throw out any statistics at all, which is a distortion of what is happening. I heard this occur on the BBC a few days ago, which is why I bring this up again. Britain faces a challenge like many countries regarding immigration, but it is not being flooded, as Migration Watch wants to put it, with the numbers of immigrants. Nor is it the case that immigrants in the medium to long term are a drain on the British economy. In fact, there are a number of academic studies that are debating this and saying they are positive in the long run. So let's have this as a sensible conversation rather than the hysteria, which is being aided and abetted, not by the Daily Mail, but by, in some cases, the BBC and by the Prime Minister. And then I think your points, your questions, can be taken into account in a responsible way rather than a way that leads to these polarizing of terms. Yeah, I mean, certainly the conversation that we're having at the moment, as in the conversation the country's having, not the conversation you, are, you and I are having, is not the conversation that I think we should be having. And the number of people who are entering Britain is low. I yeah. think we have to accept that now. How high it would be if you said everyone who wants to come can come with no due process and, and stay, who knows? But uh, uh, I guess that's not, as you said, the, the conversation everyone, uh, or that's not a policy anyone is explicitly advocating. I guess what I'm saying is that in an ironic way, if you want large numbers of people to enter the country for economic reasons without much barrier to that, it's actually a lot easier to be in favour of that position if you're a pretty liberal, Thatcherite, right-of-center person, albeit you might need to pacify some of your xenophobic party base. It's harder if you are in favor of relatively high benefits, for example, relatively high levels of redistribution, to reconcile that with very high levels of economic immigration. And I'm the first to say I have no solutions to that. I'm really just hanging out there the fact that at the back of my mind, I am conflicted deeply between these two principles, that on the one hand I feel all of the angst and guilt and desire to do something to address the obvious injustices that are leading so many people to risk so much to want to come here for understandable economic reasons, with the fact that most of the things that I favour as a domestic political programme would not be reconcilable uh, with an open-door policy. And I value that. I, I value that point of view, Adam. But I'd come back and say that what you're really addressing there isn't a core question regarding immigration. It's a core question regarding how we see providing services for all people in this country, immigrants or non-immigrants, social services. And the trend of opinion in this country, at least amongst many, or the, the, the rhetoric has been to say, look, let's cut taxes. Let's reduce the burden. And it's always framed as the lower middle class, but let's be honest, on the upper class as well. And lower taxes means, of course, there's less funds out there to provide the social services. That's what we're really talking about here. Once again, immigrants simply come in on top of that. I say that, and I'll just then turn it over to you and Cristal, maybe to wrap up on this with a point, which is this isn't something that you can isolate just as it's against them and not us. You know, I'm an immigrant. Under the rules that are in Britain now, not the ones being proposed, but under the rules, I would be treated as an economic migrant because I chose not to come for political asylum from the U.S. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you say I should have. It yeah, matter. you considered it. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. But I came because I actually wanted to live here and therefore I took my job here. Now, under the current rules in Britain, there is no way that I could have remained in this country and taken up my post. I would have had to have come back to the United States stayed for a period of months and possibly years before having any chance of coming here. Which system do you think I favor? Cristala. I uh, want to take us a couple of steps backwards uh, in a way that isn't entirely related but hasn't been addressed in this conversation. And I don't have the answers that you're looking for either, Adam, but I wonder also... Uh, I'm not sure they exist, Cristala. <laughs> it's a sad world on so many <laughs> levels. Um, to what extent has the left in the UK um, discussed the legacy of, of Britain's colonial 
so Britain's colonial legacy. And I say that especially because I am a child of two colonial or two two colonial countries, mm. Cyprus so and colonial Australia. Colonial splicing, if you exactly. Will. And um, and not a direct refugee, but of a family of refugees of a conflict that was colonial in the making. Um, and and I do wonder, you know, there might be a lot of uh, discussion about kind of why um, of the extent to which we, we, we bring people in or allow them in, but I wonder how much there's a conversation about the extent to which uh, Britain, particularly by other countries, also set themselves up as these global archetypes of humanity and civility and then close down when when migrants come that's my yeah once it starts costing money that's when the trouble starts that's my <laughs> experience been, of this issue and every other issue has there been a discussion in the left in, in among the left in britain about this well i, mean, I, I don't in know in terms that. of is there a framing of it let me refer you back to a framing which took place a few generations ago but i think you're seeing the legacy of it now in the questions that you're raising there was a chappie named orwell back in the 1930s, who said uh, it was all well and good for the left to be anti-imperialist, but the left actually benefited from imperialism, that the British economy, which they enjoyed the fruits of, was based upon exploitation of the empire. So the left needed to actually face up to this and say, if we're anti-imperialist, are we willing to take the economic cost and sacrifice of having a fairer and more equitable system. Now, in a week when we were going to have a labor leadership contest, in which unexpectedly a man named Jeremy Corbyn, who is very anti-imperialist, very anti-austerity, but is saying to the Labor Party, you need to, if you really want to progress, you have to take on both of those issues. I think Orwell's indication uh, is relevant still and encompasses both the economic issues and immigration, which we've been talking about. Yeah. And if we do end up with a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party, policy on immigration is one of the areas I'll look at with most interest to see what that version of revived British left-wing politics's version of that debate is. I don't doubt it's going to be pretty brave uh, one way or another because most of the things coming out of uh, his policy programme seem to be. But it's, it's something I'm going to be watching with interest because there are some hard tensions uh, there that uh, I think we'll be digesting uh, at length within the British left over the course of the years to come. Anyway, let's uh, let's draw a line under that item there. Okay, now we turn to our regular segment, which is number of the week. What have you got for us, Cristala? Uh, I have two numbers of the week this week. I have the number 102 and the number 21. And uh, leading off our first discussion today about asylum seekers and refugees, a German couple have started a website to match refugees with roommates in Germany. And this uh, website and app is called Refugees Welcome. So it's trying to knock back this idea that refugees are not welcome in these countries. Um, and it has housed over the last not very long 102 refugees um, in towns and cities across Germany and Austria. Now, this is also a reaction to German authorities in a town whose name I can't pronounce, but we'll try, Schwert. Who were criticized. I have no reason to contradict <laughs> that. I am going to just let you run with it. I'm going to go with it. If we have any listeners from Schwert, then uh, please let us know. Perhaps more more uh, suitably informed listeners, please do let us know and abuse me suitably. Um, but they were criticized earlier this year for suggesting that 21 asylum seekers, so that's my other number, be housed in barracks at a Nazi concentration camp. So I started my, my number of the week with a little bit of hope, talking about how this app, which is being looked at in, in other countries as well, uh, is a much more friendly approach to this topic. And let's also say that there are these kind of grassroots initiatives happening around the world. And then I end my number of the week with a grim reflection on where some of our refugees are being placed. Yeah, technology making the world a better place, concentration camps not so much. <laughs> okay, Scott, over you, what have you got? My number of the week is 90. 
in light of our discussion to come on Mr. Trump and uh, the Republican race for the presidency, I thought I would use 90 to refer to a man named Jimmy Carter, who is 90 years old and has announced this week that after a long career in service, ranging from the U.S. military to the presidency to humanitarian organizations, he now is suffering from liver cancer and is preparing, basically, to uh, say goodbye. And I say that to actually celebrate Carter, partly because of the 34 years he has spent since he left office in a range of initiatives, from peacemaking with North Korea, from efforts in Haiti to deal with economic deprivation, from efforts to create dialogue and discussion rather than encouraging conflict of the type that we've been talking about in our first item. And I say it not only to celebrate the year since he left office, but to go back and actually look back on his time in office, because Carter, who is often derided as being one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. I think it deserves a fair break. I think it deserves a fair break, first of all, for being one of the most honest men ever to go into the presidency, perhaps a bit too honest, a bit too naive, and someone who actually went into the office promoting the notion of human rights, that one didn't have to serve power or self-interest, but one could actually look for a way forward and indeed reverse policies that had been negative and detrimental to the United States and the world. Of course, one might say, and in fact, justifiably so, that he failed. That by the end of his presidency, the United States would be caught up in the Iran hostage crisis. It would face the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Carter's efforts at arms control would have been destroyed by the U.S. Congress. And we would have the Reagan years, which emphasized much more the confrontation with the evil empire. But you know what? Looking back on it, that honorable failure is much preferable, I think, than suppose the resolute toughness that supposedly ended the Cold War and ushered in the 21st century. Because even as Reagan is being celebrated with monuments and tributes, let's put him on our coins, let's put a building after him, I look back and think that the Reagan world was one which ironically supposedly ended the Cold War by stressing armed confrontation and division. Whereas Carter, for his supposed failure, was at least someone who held out the hope that we didn't have to go down that path. Hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what the various obituaries in the public square are like, because, as you say... Um, I mean, he's an ex-president, so presumably there will be a degree of reverence and a degree of sobriety from all sources, but he's also been hammered and derided so thoroughly by, by certain sections of the American conversation for so long. Watching them attempt to find the language in which to say what they feel is their obligation to say a nice thing will be, will be quite, a, quite a sight. I guess uh, I'm going for something less political, or is it? I don't know. Mm. Um, but it's uh, on point of cultural difference. A couple of numbers that struck me uh, with regard to bulls and Spain. In the course of the uh, summer since July, seven people have been killed in Spain um, by bulls in these rather strange festivals where they run down streets pursued through choice. Uh, by by animals that I imagine are not in their natural uh, uh, sense of ease as a result of being put in, in in that situation, which every time I see it, I wonder how more people aren't killed. But uh, but it's one of those figures that just reminds me: yes, there isn't some secret to this. You are actually running down the street with a bull that you've chosen to let run after you, and this can go wrong, and you might die. But don't worry, in case you thought the bulls were getting the uh, uh, the upper hand here, there are also 7,200 bulls have been killed uh, in the course of this year, uh, bulls and steers uh, in the course of bullfighting in Spain. That seems like a lot to me, I don't know. So I'm not a vegetarian, uh, so I'm not, I don't really have a lot of high ground on which to criticise the killing of animals for reasons that are convenient to you. But there's just, I guess, I'm having a moment of cultural relativism as I think about Spain, a country so close uh, to me in which I actually have an aunt who lives, and the fact that it's a country in which apparently thousands of uh, bulls are killed in elaborate uh, fighting spectacles, uh, and also in which people get killed in, in street running uh, escapades involving bulls as well. Our relationship with bulls is very different in this country, and I feel quite glad about that, I think, when I, when I hear those kind of figures. Spain, you mystify me. That's what I'm saying today. <laughs> Well, thank goodness we can hold the high, high ground because we no longer hunt foxes, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, keep that page open, though. TikTok, Scott. TikTok. <laughs> thank you, man. Anyway, shall we? Yeah. Ahem. <laughs>
Donald Trump first came to fame in the 1980s as a real estate developer, multi-millionaire slash billionaire and self-promoter to put even the sternest competition in that sphere to shame. Since then, he's built his brand further as a TV personality, supposed writer of books and cultural presence, admired and reviled by the public in uncertain proportion for the sheer scale of his ego, bombast and shamelessness. He's flirted with politics for some time, but in 2015 he's finally taken the plunge and declared himself a candidate for a Republican Party nomination for president. Since then he's defied expectations, at least the expectations of most, becoming the front-runner in an admittedly crowded field within the latest Fox News poll, 25% of Republicans nationally saying that they support him. He's achieved this in spite of a candidacy that has, even in its short life, included suggesting Mexican immigrants are rapists, insulting the war record of Senator John McCain, and getting into a spat with moderator Megyn Kelly during the first debate, in which he not only failed to rebut accusations of misogynist tendencies, but compounded them. Oh, and he also called all American leaders stupid. What are we to make of this? How seriously should we take his candidacy? Which of the signs of the apocalypse does it most closely resemble? Uh, I'm not altogether sure. Scott, maybe you can help me out. It's a circus. For right now, he's the ringmaster. You know, it's not exactly like American politics has ever been one where uh, calm, reflective thought has been valued over the soundbite, be it racist, misogynist, generally obnoxious. I mean, H.L. Mencken back in the 1920s. He said some things. Said some <laughs> things about politics being in a monkey cage. But even with that proud history, I think... The combination of Trump, a polarized, self-interested, mainstream American media, and just the general detachment of entertainment from anything approaching a factual consideration of the issues has produced where we are today. 17 candidates for the Republican nomination divided into two groups a few weeks ago. But Fox News, owned by Mr. Murdoch had deliberately set this up to jack up the ratings, which means jack up the advertising revenues, and succeeded with 24 million people watching, the largest number in American history. They got what they wanted out of Trump. The very first question was, those of you who would stand as an independent rather than pledging not to stand if you're denied the Republican nomination, put your hand up. There was the Donald with his hand up, that jaw jutting out at us, those eyes narrowed. And Fox got what they wanted. Mr. Trump, really? He said, yes, I will stand as an independent. I still think I have what it takes, blah, blah, blah. Screw you Republicans if you think that you're going to push me out that easily. And that's the way it continues. Would you support the candidate of the Republican Party? And he said, well, I would if it's me. That's correct. Both the gist and possibly actually the, the wordage of his answer. Narcissus speaks. Again and again and again, to the point, of course, where Fox kept it rolling, perhaps unwittingly at first, when Trump went onto Twitter, instead of trashing the other Republican candidates or John McCain, he trashed Fox presenter Megyn Kelly with a series of misogynist comments, which I won't even repeat at this point. But Fox, of course, now had two decisions. Blood was involved. Blood was involved. And Fox could either say, that's terrible, we're going to back off. Or he could actually circulate those comments and get more ratings. And there's where we are. The fact is, is that that spectacle is what is being defined as the Republican contest right now. Jeb Bush, who did not come across as being as arrogant, as narcissistic, who actually came across, and it pains me to say this because I'm not a fan of the Bush family, as being very thoughtful on the issues, has slipped from second to fourth in the polls. Marco Rubio, who comes across as thoughtful on some issues, saves himself because he's batshit crazy on others, such as climate change. So he's holding himself up He's not a scientist, Scott. And he's not a scientist. The man who supposedly is a scientist, or at least a medic, Ben Carson, has shot up in the polls to second place by saying things like, you know what? Torture isn't bad at all. That's the state of politics in the United States, at least amongst the Republican Party. That said... You're going to get your entertainment from the Donald, and then reality is going to set in, and it's going to set in probably hardest for the Republican Party. Because the longest this goes on, it may be entertaining, it may be spectacle, but it will suck all the oxygen out of 
a decent, considered Republican campaign against the ultimate foe, Hillary Clinton, and it means that the Democrats are likely to retain the White House in 2016. Um, I don't say that to be in celebratory mode over Miss Clinton by a long shot, uh, because I think she will triumph, not because we actually are dealing with the issues, and then a whole range of serious issues we could talk about regarding American domestic and foreign policy, but because it's far more easier to take yaboo positions on them. I would use the word pantomime, except Americans don't know what a British panto is. It's he's far behind e- you. Yeah, he's, except he isn't behind you. He's in front of you, and <laughs> the Donald is getting larger and larger. Away. Exactly. I, you know, is that you... Uh, what would he look like dressed as a dame? I'd pay a ticket for that. <laughs> I, I think people will continue to pay their tickets in the sense that they will continue to flip on to get the sound bites, or they're going to Twitter just to see what he says. And what it means is is that America walks away from the type of discussion that it supposedly claims it likes to have as being a leader of the world. So to play with your metaphor a little bit, sure. Narcissus wild away, staring at his own reflection, and it doesn't appear that that's going to be the state of Donald Trump or the American kind of entertainment election system and what does it say what so what does it say about whether americans want the 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 average american wants entertainment instead of information let's put it that kind of bluntly and then also um what does it say about donald trump's strategy because essentially he's using the national media to kind of bypass the the primaries and the caucus and all of that so it seems to be at this stage quite an effective strategy. What does that say about the system? Well, there's probably a two-level answer that cuts in slightly different directions. At one level, you're going to see the Republican machine in the sense of the organized financiers, corporate interest, local, state, national constituencies. They're going to organize to bring about the downfall of narcissists. And they may well already be. I mean, all the signs are that there are that, oh. that machinery is already in place. But he, this is a man who can shrug well, that off. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what this spectacle is about. Yeah. It's about the party machinery, which would clearly like to just take him out and yeah. go woodshed somewhere yeah. where no one can hear the sounds <laughs> and put a bullet in him. But uh, they just don't seem to be able to do it because none of the usual... I mean, if you said, if any other candidate said any one of those things, you normally wouldn't uh, see them uh, ever again in, in, in the public square, whereas it just seems to uh, blow over in his case, or he at least not harm him. Mr. Make America Great Again, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's his brand, yeah. I guess, to be able to say terrible things and get away with them. So every time it happens, it feels like he's just uh, reinforcing that. For now, I think he can get away with it. Uh, I think... My father, who I use as a reference point for U.S. politics. Not because he resembles Donald Trump in any way, I hope. No. That would be a sad direction for this story no, to take. No, because he isn't just representing. He is the person who said to me, you know, I, I don't know what he'd be like for foreign policy in the world, but boy, he sure is shaking up those politicians. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's that's an endorsement. I don't think that'll be the endorsement you get. In fact, you'll get the opposite from for example, the Wall Street Journal, yeah. which is ironically Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal day after day after day is warning of the threat of Donald Trump while Rupert Murdoch's Fox News is benefiting mm-hmm. off that supposed menace. You will see other newspapers, bastions of the Republican establishment, they will try to mobilize opinion. Some conservative outlets, I mean very conservative outlets like Red State, have now blacklisted Trump already because they think he's just crossed the line in terms of what he has said about other Republican candidates. So I think... Trump's campaign will be curtailed by the time we get to Super Tuesday next March. But having said that, here's the paradox that comes into play. What Trump does is he turns this into whichever candidate the machine mobilizes behind. It's going to entertain us, mm-hmm. bedazzle us, give us the spectacle rather than just simply the calm, measured demeanor to the economy and to national security. And Jeb Bush is having the oxygen taken out of his campaign because he cannot or will not do that. By the time you get to the point next March, will the party get turned to Bush and say, fine, you can come in again? Or will they turn to someone like a Marco Rubio from Florida? 
will they turn to that absolute head case, Ted Cruz, the Tea Party's favorite out of Texas? Well, you got to worry about that guy. It, that he was talking about during the debate. Yeah, yeah he exactly. Is, he is a, he's a nasty piece of work. I mean, if you're looking through Trump through your window, you keep your lights on at night because of Ted Cruz, right? Hmm. Now, who does the party turn to? They could get away with it in the past, in an age where we hadn't quite reached this element of spectacle, say in the 1980s, when they could get a combination of supposed statesmen and showmen in the form of Ronald Reagan, right? Because Reagan could give you the smile, he could give you enough of the flamboyance, and yet come across as, well, if I'm, you know, I am presidential, I don't like the guy, but he pulled off the trick. I don't think the Republicans have got a candidate now who can pull off that Reagan phenomenon. More worryingly, what does it say, and I think this is the question we're driving at, what does it say, are we in an American system now where someone who would be an effective leader by every measure that we talk about, socially, economically, and politically, has not got a hope in hell of taking office because they can't set all of that aside for a moment and deliver the 15 seconds that's going to dominate the evening news. Mm. I mean, when I look at it, I kind of, I suppose I'm not as, 100% solid about this next statement as I was a while ago, but I'm still about 99% on it. Like, he's not going to win the nomination, that is, let alone the presidency. I mean, his his uh, negatives are too strong, for one thing. There are just enough people who say, within the context of even the primary contest he's in, I would never vote for this guy. I actively dislike him, which you know, is an important figure to put alongside whatever percentage say that they, they support you or at least they're open to you. And of course, even amongst those supporters, it's the easiest thing in the world to tell someone in August of 2015 who you support. You know, you, you can make all sorts of yeah. symbolic uh, uh, or performative choices. Maybe people aren't self-consciously doing that, but... Uh, you yeah, exactly. So you're trying to send a message of some kind quite different from the one you would send if you actually had to put a name next to a box and think about who, who you're actually going to win. And I mean, the Reagan analogy, which is the one that people throw out there sometimes, that, well, no one thought he could win. He seemed too extreme, too fringe, too to the right. This was a two-term governor of California we were talking about at that point, someone who had a track record of winning elections, running public uh, machinery. Donald Trump has never held public office. There's a reason for that, uh, both in terms of his own makeup and in terms of the job. I don't know if he became president, uh, what he would even do, whether he would want that. Uh, you know, I, I have serious doubts about his motivation in entering the process about whether that's even a goal that he wants. But what I will say is he is shaking the situation up for sure. So within the context of him not winning, because that would be nightmarish, um, I think you know there are some things that, that are interesting. One is they're suddenly making these debates more exciting. Uh, you wouldn't have got that kind of viewership otherwise. I doubt anyone would know there had been a debate if it hadn't been for that. There was an advisor to John Kasich, the uh, former governor of Ohio, uh, who participated in, in that debate. He was the one who crept in as the 10th ranked in, in the polls, who said that uh, preparing for that debate was like uh, a driver preparing for a NASCAR race, knowing that one of the other drivers would be drunk uh, once he got onto the onto the course, that you, it was a difficult business. Yeah, so it's, it's certainly shaking people out of the sort of recitation of platitudes that is the normal dynamic. Now, that's partly because awful things are being said, but that takes into point two, which is that he's putting the other candidates in a genuinely awkward position in, in a lot of cases. You know, Republican candidates for office like to, need to, to some extent, dog whistle their views and elicit support from those in the electorate who have what we would consider racist or xenophobic or misogynistic tendencies, but without being explicit about the fact that that's something that you would even tolerate, let alone be sympathetic to. What he's doing by saying these outrageous things out loud in the public square is putting these people in a position where they've got to respond to that. And you know, do you condemn it outright and therefore risk alienating these people whose support you ultimately want? Do you tolerate it and risk alienating the mainstream? electorate it's a really interesting um spectacle to see them have to deal with the fact that they kind of want the votes of the sort of person who is voting is saying they support him now ultimately but it's intolerable uh, to do it by a direct appeal and because donald trump doesn't know or doesn't care about the rules he just says what he thinks uh, in a way that's destabilizing things and then thirdly the fact that those voters aren't aren't going away uh, you know even when he does they will they, they will still be somewhere and he's throwing out this complicated mixture of 
xenophobia and anti-immigration, uh, kind of populist uh, redistributionism in some ways. He's making this talk about uh, uh, increasing government spending in some areas uh, as well. So it's a real uh, grab bag, pick and mix of policies all hung together around a kind of general burning resentment about the political system and anger about its dysfunction and lack of patience and tolerance for listening to normal politicians do the normal things. And when he's no longer there and those voters need to be somehow harnessed and plugged into the the voter-based Republican Party again, it's going to be a really difficult challenge. They're not going to be as easily co-opted as uh, perhaps they have been in previous years. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for the electoral process for uh, the United States, for civilization in general. But it is certainly a spectacle, um, and it is certainly a sign of the times, in a way, that people have been uh, reduced to the state of rage and frustration with the political process that they have, and that people like this, who would have been clowns in previous eras, are able to make quite as much hay as they're able to make. But just to go back to a point that you made um, a couple of minutes ago, how worried is the Republican Party about the possibility or the consequences of him running as an independent? Because it's like he's likely to siphon off possibly a significant amount of votes, possibly not. And what are the consequences of that? I mean, if he did, it would be catastrophic for them, yes. I mean, if if he's on the ballot paper, uh, chances are he's taking at least... Uh, some percentage points of votes, chances are almost all of those are coming from Republicans. So you have, uh, you know, perhaps another Clinton getting into the White House on a plurality vote with a third candidate causing the issues, uh, like like in 1992 with Ross Perot. Um, Whether or not that's actually likely to happen, who knows? One suspects, I mean, running an independent presidential campaign is not easy. It requires an awful lot of uh, machinery and organization and focus and determination, none of which Donald Trump has shown much evidence of so far. I think he is probably better seen as somebody who is a very good negotiator, uh, who knows that he's got this party over a barrel right now, that he has all this juice coming from his support, from the harm that could be done to them. And I would expect him Uh, uh, if he makes it to the actual voting part of this process at all, to leave the process under circumstances where he has extracted something either for his private benefit or for his his self-perception from having put the party in this position rather than actually following through with a a full-scale campaign. But they're right to be worried. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Adam, on the narrow point, I could possibly agree with that in a logical, rational way, that Trump would stay there for a few months and then he would get something on the Republicans' economic policy, on their policy towards China, for example, that would you know, be a slap towards his view or towards his profits. But I think the longer that he's in this, the longer that the narcissist believes yeah. he could actually win this thing, And it came home to me in one moment, which has been, I think, overlooked because the misogyny was so horrible and because his Mexican rapist line has been so terrible. There was a moment in the debate where they asked him, you declared bankruptcy four times. Your resorts company declared bankruptcy four times. And yet you claim to be, you know, stability and economic competence. How can you do that? He said... Well, the system allowed me to do that. It allowed me to declare bankruptcy, and then I could come back and, you know, make even more money. I used the law, is, is the phrase I think he used. Uh, no, he said, you used the law. He said, but then he said, I used the law, but he said, you know, the system's broken. So the system's broken. So I benefited because the system's broken. Put me in charge of the system, and I'll fix it. What? <laughs> there are about three or four different logical conundrums in that, but you don't have to think about that at all, because what the Donald said is, hey, I'm arrogant enough to get away with this, therefore you should vote for me because I have this arrogance. Now, at one level, that will undo him. I mean, (laughs) what's the percentage of women who are going to vote for the Republican Party if he's the candidate? And it's got a contest for the next thing as well. Like, like, What is the thing you can say that will actually zero you out electorally? Uh, We're still waiting to find out. And and that's what interests me more broadly with all those other politicians beyond the people that you're talking about. Because, look, 
America is the richest country on the face of this planet. America is a country which probably has the greatest share of natural resources that it can tap into quickly. It is the most technologically advanced country on this planet. Yet here you have politicians who are catering not to those benefits and resources that Americans have. They cater to fear and anger and deprivation. And the man who is loudly expressing that anger and deprivation is not an impoverished redneck cracker living on minimum wage in West Virginia. He's certainly not an African-American who has had a lot of issues over the decades to deal with. He's one of the richest guys in the United States. Well, perhaps that's indicative of, of, of the kind of global positioning around things like migration as well and inclusion and exclusion and all of this. What you do is is you shout from the top yeah. that you're angry and frustrated to turn people against the person next door, both to your benefit and also to continue to feed, to feed that basically division because you don't actually really have an idea what you want to do. Because what you want to do would mean redistributing wealth and cutting some of your share of all the goodies you've got at the top. That's probably too logical for what the Donald's doing. He just simply is going on Twitter in his latest fit of inspiration, which is beyond our comprehension. But yeah, I think that's the phenomenon that's going on. And it does not... I, you can hear, part of this is my sadness because of, of the states and coming from there. But part of it is just, for God's sake, folks, it's not only... Don't you realize this isn't not just good for the United States... It ain't good for the world. It ain't good for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, there was a good article I read, I think it was on Vox, uh, recently talking about what his appeal is, and that part of it was some kind of uh, vicarious wish fulfillment, that you get to see someone who is just utterly uninhibited, uh, uh, ludicrously powerful as a result of their wealth, uh, trample all over uh, uh, those around them and the, the institutions in which they are. Uh, I think the the, the the catchphrase in the article was something like, this is the only uh, 60-something-year-old white guy in America who gets to act like a rap star uh, and have people uh, you know, valorize him in quite the same way. And then secondly, oh yeah, it's the idea that he he performs that wonderful trick where you get to flip the victimhood yeah. structure of normal society and basically suggest that because there is this tyranny of political correctness, because there is this uh, turning of society against the uh, the, the real core of, uh, of real Americans... And this resurgence of bleeding-heart liberalism. Yeah, that, that he gets to... Uh, make it seem somehow thrillingly politically transgressive that this rich white guy says awful things about people who aren't white or about women or about poor people. Um, and rather than that just being dickish uh, and the, the advantage kicking downwards, he somehow manages to make that disenfranchised section of society that feels like it's losing something with demographic change and with economic trends uh, feel like... Uh, if he doesn't quite speak to them or for them, somehow they like the idea of being him, and they can uh, they they can get a rush from that. That at least was the theory of the article, and it's, it had something to it. There's definitely something people are getting out of this spectacle, and it isn't policy. Oh, I hate to be a real downer about this, but look, you've gone from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower. Martin Luther King, Donald Trump. That's one way of looking at it. We're going directly from Barack Obama to Donald yes. Trump, which is saddening enough, I think. I think that is very, very true. You've gone from hope to angry despair, even if it's posed angry despair. But here's the second thing that's really scary. What's the difference between that type of description that you've given of what Trump plays upon from something like the National Front in France under Jean-Marie Le Pen and now under his daughter. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between that type of rhetoric which has been used by Trump and let's say right-wing parties, for example, in Greece right now trying to exploit the economic deprivation there? Or, or I mean, in a less uh, uh, fascistic way, one of the people that has uh, been referred to as a comparator is uh, Silvio Berlusconi, which is to say this person who is 
utterly buffoonish. Every time he opens his mouth, he does violence against the normal standards of discourse according to middle-class society, according to politicians. But somehow the combination of his wealth and his shamelessness just gets purchased with the right, the right number of people. Now, he hasn't organized a machine, anything like Berlusconi did, but it, there is a market for this shtick, it but seems. Unfortunately, with a big enough megaphone and a big enough spectacle... And enough swagger. One person's buffoon becomes another's prophet. And I don't quite like that outcome. I think we're going to quote you on that at some point <laughs> as the year goes on. Crystal, do you want to say any things? No, I'm not, let's leave it there. Uh, Adam, did you have? Sorry. No, 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 no. That, that, <laughs> well, what do you, you, what do you think of me? I'm the, guy, I'm, I'm the guy who asks you if you have anything to say just so I can clear the space for myself to say something. Is that how, I, how I've come to be perceived? That's upsetting to me. That is upsetting paranoid, to me. Adam, little bit anyway, paranoid. I need to, uh, I need to wrap this up. Uh, I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me at Adam James Quinn on Twitter or uh, on Facebook, where I post prolifically. My co-hosts are Kristala Yakinthu. Where can they find you, Kristala? They can find me on at Yakinthu if they can spell my surname. Um, Would you like to spell it for them? Go on. Oh, Let's go mad with the helpfulness. Y a k i n t h o u, and otherwise um, through my university profile, Scott. Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter, and the EA stands for EA Worldview, your finest little website on all things international at www.eaworldview.com. Which everyone should follow. I thank you. So, okay, you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you keep coming back too. Cheerio for now.